Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast, a podcast designed for you with insights from fellow members as well as NFP and Partners Financial experts. Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast. I'm Kristen Williams, and today, Jen Fox and Army Robinson with Finseca are here to give us a mid-year Washington update. If you recall, Jen is the Vice President of Political Affairs, and Army is the Chief Advocacy Officer for us up in Washington. So, Jen and Army, thanks for taking time to jump on the pod with me today. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. It's great to be here. It's always fun when you guys swing by and talk about what's going on in Washington and and across the country. So uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Jen, if you want to give us sort of an overview of what we're seeing in Washington, we were just talking about the fact that this is the longest Congress has managed to stay in session in quite some time. Um, So what does that mean for us and what are we seeing? So we are coming off of, um, I would say, a historic debt ceiling debate here. Um, I think a renewed sense of bipartisanship, if you will, in Washington, um, you know, a fight that folks were pretty curious about getting across the finish line that could have had pretty dramatic effects on this country. Um, We were glad to see Congress work well with the president to get that across the finish line. Um, But that doesn't stop sort of some of the antics that happen here in Washington. Of course, you've seen some of the rebel rousers on the Republican side, uh, cause a little bit of trouble for Speaker McCarthy as sort of the moral of the story this year um, is someone is bothering Mr. McCarthy. Uh, Congress has been in session here. I think we're going on almost seven weeks straight for the House. I usually tell by how much traffic is in Washington, what's going on. Um, but really what kicks off now is the budget process. Um, and if you remember during the the um, debt ceiling debate, what they set the uh, spending at was 2022 levels. Uh, so this will be a really interesting process. They're going to go through um, each committee will set up sort of their budget um, and we'll see that process happen. We haven't seen that process happen. Army, you're the ex- historian. When was the last time we saw a real budget process go down? Oh, it's been since my early days on the Hill, Jen. It's like closer to 18, almost 20 years uh, before since it's been sort of what they call regular order, the way the process is designed, but not how it functions. So we'll sort of see how that all comes together. Again, regular order is a loose term here in Washington. Um, But, you know, I think something to really flag for the for the folks that are listening today is what we saw earlier last week um, was a bill, a tax bill introduced out of the House Ways and Means Committee by Chairman Jason Smith, really to extend certain parts of Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, And the, the idea process, the idea behind that bill was parts that had already expired that they were looking to extend really to sort of try to line up that 2025 deadline. And we'll talk about that more later. Um, you know, but really, as we look at it, not a ton that really affects the profession. There's some stuff in there about standard deductions. Um, but the thing about that piece of legislation in specific is it actually added to the deficit. It didn't make it um, better. Um, but so as we see that, that bill is never going to get across the finishing line. But as Army and I and the team at FinSecond think about it, is that starting the conversation on what could potentially see a tax package? There's been some talk in Senate finance as well about getting something across the finish line in a bipartisan way, of course. Uh, so we'll see sort of how that conversation progresses throughout the year. And Jen, do you think that that something across the finish line loose goal, such as it is, is a do it by 2024 or just at this nick of time before the sunset deadline at the end of 25? Um, so I think the, the that piece of legislation specific that we're thinking about in this Congress is 
is perhaps this Congress, right? I think um, there's an interesting article over the weekend about whoever, if possible, if either party takes the entire, um, takes a, uh, the House, the Senate, and the presidency, they have full control over sort of what 2025 is going to look like and what the next tax package is. So this bill that they're looking at here is really to pick apart little pieces of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act bill, uh, more so to get something across the finish line before the end of 24. But Army, any, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I think so. Some of this stuff is like R&D tax credit and uh, full expensing. So any of you who are working with small business owners and capital intensive or research intensive uh, businesses like this, th this item, those things might happen uh, later this year. Um, but they're so like that's good client conversation starter, Kristen. But um, the other two things we're watching here, of course, is um how they pay for it. So Jason Smith's bill, the Republican bill, as Jen accurately said, is not going anywhere as it's currently written. And that's primarily because he pays for it um, or offsets uh, the tax relief he wants to give uh, by repealing large sections of the Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, the Senate Democrats and the president are never going to do. Um, so, you know, one of the other ways uh, we always track tax legislation is are they are they coming looking for their revenue in our pocket? Um, and so any bipartisan bill uh, that might occur at the end of this year uh, will also presumably have to be offset at some level. And what are they going to look for in those pay fors? As our friend Ken Key said, uh, if there were easy and politically palatable offsets available on the shelf, they would already have been used by now. That makes sense. And um, we there's always a recess right around the 4th of July and then, you know, come back in the fall. What do you guys see will be sort of priorities in addition to the tax? But I mean, you always have a list of things, you know, like we have to keep the lights on and, and people getting paid. What are some of the things that will take up bandwidth just to keep things moving forward? Well, as our, our friends uh, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell like to remind folks, the Senate is uh, partially a personnel vetting, reference checking uh, function for the executive branch. So the confirmation of judges and, and others uh, will be uh, certainly part of that. Some big items this year uh, that are on the to-do list um, are uh, reauthorization of the FAA, uh, reauthorization of the Farm Bill, which is both agricultural support um, as well as like food stamp programs. Um, so some of these things are uh, significantly contentious uh, as we head down the stretch. There's also some big national security things, uh, including the reauthorization of uh, some of the post 9-11 um, security apparatus around surveillance. Uh, and that is obviously very controversial. It has become increasingly so uh, in the more than 20 years since 9-11. Uh, so there's some of the big things. And then, of course, as Jen mentioned, you got to keep the lights on, the government funded. I do, unfortunately, think at the moment we're looking at a brief government shutdown in the uh, early October days, how long it lasts um, is sort of TBD. But as, as regular listeners will know, there are two things govern Washington, vote count and, and budget math or vote math and budget math. And uh, uh, those are both problems this year. Okay. That's interesting. What other things are you both focusing on and or should we be talking to clients about and sort of issues that need focus? So I think one of the biggest things this year 
is been a long-awaited transfer of value, reportable policy sale regs. This is Treasury's second major crack at these regs. Um, and uh, the big impacts are for Coley Bully and non-qualified for comp marketplace, sort of that executive comp piece. Um, and there are two big pieces that are highly impactful to our members um, and that marketplace. One is um, at Fonseca's urging, Treasury has a, has added an additional exception to the rule for de minimis transactions of C-Corps and non-taxable reorgs or M&A activity. Um, this gets this is like a top three most complicated issue I've worked on in my time here. So if you want more information, uh, please reach out to your FinSec contact and we can dig in deeper. But in essence, uh, the administrator says that when the M&A activity is um, less than five percent of the aggregate total of the sale of the the transaction is the life insurance, then obviously the life insurance was not the purpose of the transaction. And so that life insurance preserves its tax treatment. Um, FinSeca comments are due on this these proposed regs July 10th. And so one of the things our comment letter will lean heavily into is that they have restricted that exception to C-Corps and non-taxable reorgs in a way that leads to economically unjustifiable uh, results, right? Like why not S-Corps? Why not taxable transactions? Um, there's a lot of uh, obvious discussion around Signature and um, S Silicon Valley Bank and JP Morgan has bought, uh, I can't remember which one they bought, uh, and a treasury negotiated deal, but there's a big bully block there. Mm -hmm. like whether or not they take it depends in some sense on the tax treatment. And so like this has really significant impacts. Right. The other one, the other piece of this reg is uh, sort of an ancillary deal, but it is uh, their initial, their first regs in 2019 um, changed sort of the the view of 1035s of Bole and Coley blocks. Um, and this new reg sort of wipes that away. And so the concern there reputationally for the profession and, the, and that marketplace as a whole is if you're 1035ing in active lives, in our opinion, you are buying a new life insurance contract on a life with whom you have no current relationship. And that is a major reputational problem in our mind. Um, but we got to work through that as well. And so uh, our comment letter is also likely to address that piece of it. Again, all very technical stuff. But if you want more, uh, we love our NFP family. Uh, reach out to me or Jen or Alex Kim, and we can dig in. It's probably more than we have time for this morning. That was a perfect high level. I expect that people will be calling with a little bit more information. What about you, Jen? What are some of the things that you think we should be focusing on? In the retirement space, of course, Secure 2.0, you know, got across the finish line, but in such a massive bill, we had some technical um, issues where they, you know, truly forgot or lost a page, lost a paragraph. Um, so there's some definitely outstanding pieces there. I had a call last week um, with Ways and Means Committee staff, and we were talking a bit about this. And there will be, they're working on some technical corrections, especially as we think about the profession around the IRA, um, the Roth catch-up contributions, um, giving some more language there. They're working pretty closely with Treasury, um, but we don't imagine, at least that's what the staff said, is they don't have anything drafted yet. Um, and so likely if there are going to be technical corrections, it'll be done at the end of the year. So certainly something we're tracking because uh, we definitely know that that goes into that should go in uh, sometime next year and folks need to know how to implement it. So uh, working closely with ways and means just to keep abreast of that as well. That makes sense. Um, in our last few minutes, is there anything on the state level that you think really sort of requires the attention of our profession or our clients? 
I mean, the biggest thing this year, no doubt on the state side, has been California's effort. Uh, they um, initially had a fiduciary-like proposal uh, that would have totally revolutionized anybody with a California license's business. Um, it was a fiduciary-like, inclusive of life insurance, banning all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, I think um, the line I like the best I came up with was the Frankenstein's child of every bad idea I've seen in the last six years here. Uh, but through the phenomenal work of our coalition with the ACLI and NAFA and IRI and a whole bunch of others and the leadership of Melissa Bova, we hired counsel in Sacramento. Uh, and we now have a product that is moving this past the Senate and is moving through the House in Sacramento that is more aligned with the fiduciary or sorry, with the um <clears throat> NAIC annuity best interest standard. It's not completely there because California being California always has to be a little different as uh, Texans are learning more uh, to their occasional mm -hmm. today. Um, but uh, so that's been a really constructive process, but would have had a dramatic impact on the way we do business and our ability to serve more people. Um, Speaking of, we're now at 39 states have adopted the NAIC's annuity best interest standard. And I know the standards of conduct stuff isn't the isn't anybody's favorite subject. Let's be quite candid. Uh, but it is it has huge impacts on your compliance cost, your regulatory burden, the length of disclosure and length of application mm -hmm. uh, that your clients have to go to. And so it is it's really important to serve our clients well and have good standards, but it's also a huge weight on the client advisor place. And Fonseca is really trying to bring that voice to this conversation. Um, so it's not just uh, decided by a whole bunch of lawyers, well-meaning though they may be, who never sit with a client. Right. Um, and that's a big deal in our work in California and in New York. And I just add to that, Kristen, I think it's, you know, wearing my political affairs hat, um, really FinSecond members had a difference here. Um, it was based off relationships, constituent reaction, interactions with um, the Senate and um, Insurance Committee that we were able to make substantial changes to that piece of legislation. And thank goodness for our FinSecond members, but also as a reminder um, that your voice does matter. I know sometimes folks feel like they're just a small fish in a big pond. Um, but really, we can have an effect, and that's the great part about um, you know being engaged with Senseca. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, and it's good news that we were able to sort of turn the tide and and you know work in in favor of the profession. Um, we're coming up on the end of our podcast time, but I can't let you both go without asking you the question that I get asked all the time. So it seemed only fair. Um, the thing that I get asked all the time, of course, is about the sunset and specifically the doubled exemption. I feel like that's the thing everybody's focused on right now. 199 cap A, we can deal with that later. But the double exemption, are we going to see that sunset? Will it sunset? Will it, what's going to happen? So dust off those crystal balls I always ask you to bring to the podcast. <laughs> we won't hold you to it, but we're curious what you think. Uh, I'm going to, I mean, the real question you're asking is who's going to win the next, ele next election? Oh. Uh, right. <laughs> so Jen, as the VP of political affairs, you want to offer a prediction on 2024? It is not my job to predict, but rather to prepare. Um, and that's what the second <laughs> um, So we are preparing for any outcome. I think, Kristen, the biggest thing is it's going to cost almost $3 trillion to extend that package. Um, and as you think about that, that is a huge bill and sort of back backwarding a, a, um, rewinding to the um, debt ceiling conversation. We are going to be right in the same conversation right around the beginning of this of 2025. And so it's something us for really keep to really keep in mind is we're not going to add 
$3 trillion back to the deficit. Right. Uh, so there is going to need to be choices made. And I know you joked about 199 cap A, but that's an expensive provision as is um, the, the doubled exemptions. So how are we going to find that balance um, as well as the individual rates, of course. So FinSeca right now is working to prepare for any outcome to make sure that your clients in Pacific are, are mostly prepared. So, so, so I do, though, um, I want to push back a little bit on the it depends on who you think is going to win statement. And uh, I think that's very true on one level, but to Jen's point, it's an expensive package. And I remember I'm going to attribute it to you, Army, because it's smart. Um, years ago, when the Tax Cut and Job Act was enacted originally, we had a billionaire in office and lots of cabinet people were billionaires and, you know, in, in Congress even. And, and I feel like it was you who said this was sort of the best possible moment to repeal the estate tax, right? We had as much momentum as possible. The Republicans controlled all three branches and we couldn't get there. I, I wonder if really who wins the election is going to have that much of an impact on it, particularly given the cost of a lot of these different provisions. So it's all on a spectrum, right? If if you get all republic, if if the American people send all Republicans uh, back, uh, Republican in the White House, Republican Senate, which is the most likely, and then the House, um, there will be a push for repeal. Um, this is the part of the tax code that Donald J. Trump understands the best. <laughs> um, he is personally invested, and during 2017 was making personal. It's the only tax policy I know that I can confirm he was specifically calling and asking people for repeal. Mm -hmm. Wanted. He obviously has a vested interest in it, um, and we ended up with a doubled exemption. Uh, I think Jen's right. Like it'll even if you get that repeal feels unlikely, but as they have like chipped away at it, Republicans since 2001, we've come a long way on rates and exemptions and reunification. Um, less and less people are affected and less and less revenue is actually there anymore. Right. And so that's clearly part of their strategy is, does it really cost that much to push it all the way over the end? Um, I think if you get any Democratic lineup uh, or any Democratic uh, counterweight in the mix, then you're at something uh, equivalent to what we have now or less. Now, will it go to like the Bernie Sanders proposed three and a half and seven? Probably not. But I would say the sweet spot is pro in a divided government is probably somewhere between the double exemption and the 2013 deal, which was you know originally five and a half and 11 index for inflation. Um, and then if you get all Democrats, which seems unlikely, but always possible, uh, then there'll be a whole other wealth tax conversation. But part of what drives this, and Josh, Karen, and I were having a great conversation about this last week, is the prioritization. And so the other, Jen talked about the tax piece, $3 trillion Tax Cuts and Jobs Act extension. But Congress, who loves to work on deadlines, or more accurately, the people who drive the agenda know that Congress only works on deadlines, have layered a ton of other stuff onto that 12-31-25 date, including a whole bunch of Affordable Care Act stuff, a whole bunch of Medicare stuff. And so think fiscal cliff. Like it's going to be not $3 trillion, but $6 trillion. And do Democrats not named Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren prioritize wealth tax or Affordable Care Act subsidies? And I think the weight, part of what happens is the weight of the Democratic Party will be more in the, we have to give people health care than we have to put all our eggs in making Jeff, making sure Jeff Bezos pays more money. Um, 
But that's where the the constituent advocacy, the ambassador program really makes a difference on some of these technical and finer issues. So if if we're going to prioritize Affordable Care Act, um, does that mean that there's a compromise or give up on the estate and gift tax side? Or does it just mean we let it sort of slide off into the sunset and, and it goes back to where it was and everybody lives to fight another day? I mean, again, that that's where it sort of depends on who wins. Like Republicans, if you think about it, you guys are all guys and gals are all negotiators, right? So you go in a negotiation with your like, these are the things I got to have. And for Republicans, the estate tax may end up in the top three, top five list. Mm-hmm. For Democrats, it does not. Right. right? It's going to be Affordable Care Act. And so like, they say this is most important and they say this is most important and those two things are not the same. So they don't end up in conflict. So I give you yours, you give me mine. And oh, by the way, the Affordable Care Act stuff in terms of its impact on people and cost is way bigger than the estate tax stuff. Right. Um, but, you know, we as we've seen with PPLI, we should have talked about that and the other you know, things we're tracking. Um, you know, Ron Wyden and an increasing number of Democrats are really vested in the wealth transfer technicalities of the American people, and they are uh, continually focused. Fonseca's had conversations at least every couple of weeks with Senate Finance around the PPLI investigation, and that is a threat uh, to all permanent life insurance. Uh, you may or may not, our listeners may or may not sell a PPLI, PPLI policy ever in their lives, but it goes directly to the taxation of whole life, index universal life, and VUL. Yep. That makes sense. Well, I could keep you guys here all day to ask all of the questions, that, uh, but I know you are busy people with other things to do. So thank you so much for jumping on the podcast today. And we will be sure to have you back on again soon and ask the rest of the questions we didn't get to today. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks so much. Have a good day. <laughs>